All right. Well, um, good morning and welcome again to All Nations. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're at the front end of a new series titled The Fruit of the Spirit. And uh, last week was kind of an intro message. We kind of laid out uh, the direction and some of the dynamics of, of what it means to walk in the Spirit. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the first of the nine fruits, uh, the fruit of love. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage for today. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 24. Galatians 5, 19 to 24. I'll be reading from the ESV. The word's going to go up on the screen. And may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Amen. The word of the Lord. These are dangerous passages. Dangerous passages for us uh, as Christians, for people in the church. Because there is always a temptation to read them through the lens of moralism. Okay, Through the lens of moralism. What is moralism? Uh, professor of Southern Seminary, Albert Moeller, he describes moralism as the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Okay, that's what moralism is. Believing that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. And so there's a list of vices that Paul presents, and they're listed as the works of the flesh. And then after that, he lists a, a, a group of virtues, good things positive, beautiful ethics known as the fruit of the Spirit. And it's so tempting to think that now as we read this, if we want to apply this passage, the goal, our responsibility is to stop doing the bad things and start doing the good things. That this is what God wants for us. That this is the goal of the series. Stop doing the bad things. Start doing the good things. And then we figure, well, nobody's perfect except for Jesus. And so um, let me just kind of make this more palatable. Let me just cut out some of the bad things that I, I feel like I can, that I have the ability to do. And then if I can just improve on some of the good things, then I will be okay. I don't have to go nine for nine for the fruit of the Spirit. Um, you know, I just, you know, just a little bit better than, than where I was, right? If I can just make a little bit of an improvement, then I'm okay. So we look at this list and we try to perform. Certain things we have in check, while others, we're going to say, like, work in progress. Think about the works of the flesh, right? That whole vice list. And some of them are weird. You read about sorcery and orgies, and we're like, okay, uh, weird, but um, let me see. Uh, do I have a Ouija board at home? Let me uh, just throw that thing away. Uh, I'm not going to go to Coachella, and so the orgies thing should be checked. Actually, that's not what Paul is talking about. Um, he's actually talking about like drunken parties. And so there's this group. He talks about drunkenness and then orgies. And so it's not just like, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's the idea of 
you and a bunch of friends just absolutely losing control because it's your 21st birthday or it's your bachelor party and you don't even remember the night. That is what would be categorized under a drunken orgy. It's not awkward here. <laughs> What's the solution to jealousy? What's the solution to drunkenness? We think about that and we say, okay, well, I guess I'll get off Instagram because that's causing me to have FOMO and be jealous of my friends. Uh, maybe I just will try not to be such a hater, right? Uh, we think about drunkenness and we're like, you know what? You know, I'm just everything in moderation. I'll drink to the point where I get buzzed and then no more beyond that. And we think that's obedience. That's living out this passage. Then we read the fruit of the Spirit and we do the same. We think that if we can do one kind thing for a complete stranger, if we can just stop fighting with our spouses, if we can be a little bit more patient with our kids, that, that we are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. We think that to grow as a Christian means that we should smile more, that if we try not to get road rage, that, oh, God is working in my life. Oh, good. I mean, that in a small way, road rage, try to not do that as much. Moralism tells us if we do these things, God will accept us. If we start doing these things and performing and behaving accordingly, that God will bless us. That we're doing our job as Christians. That's the temptation when we come to passages like this. Behavior modification. That that's the goal. But friends, that's not the point of this passage. That's not the point of this series. Our change needs to go deeper than our behavior. It's not just about what we do. It's about why we do it. Why we do it. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable about a healthy fruit, a healthy tree bearing healthy fruit. And he talks about a diseased tree bearing bad fruit. Diseased fruit. And the reason why both Jesus and Paul use the metaphor of the fruit is because they are telling us the same thing. It's not just about behavior. It's not just about outward performance. It's about your nature. It's about your heart. It's about radically experiencing life in the spirit and turning away from life in the flesh. Living according to your old sinful nature. These two lists, they are, that they are in contrast. They are in contrast between life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. Life that is man-made versus life that is God-made. Your life when you are ruling, doing as you see fit, as you think is wise and good versus your life according to God's word, by God's spirit, by God's wisdom. That's the contrast. And so how should you read this Passage. How should you read through these lists if not just like kind of a, a checklist to see how you are and grading out, right, according to the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh? How should you read these passages? Well, as you read the works of the flesh and as you are convicted, as you are convicted of your jealousy, of your anger, of your gossip, your division, right, your sensuality, your sexual immorality, as you are convicted of those sins that are present and heavy in your life, you need to see more than just an action. You need to see more than just outward behavior. You actually need to see that you are under the influence, under the leadership of sin, of the flesh, right? 
And that needs to not be okay with you. Because you, if you are a Christian who has been saved by grace through faith in the gospel, that shouldn't be okay with you. Because you're not a son of Satan anymore. You're not a citizen of this world anymore. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom. And so when you hear and read over these lists and you see that evident in your life, that needs to bring in your heart brokenness, humility, repentance. That needs to press you not to, I need to change my ways. It needs to press you to the Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we need to go beyond just categories of behavior and into realms of the kingdom. Into fidelity and loyalty and discipleship either of Jesus Christ or we're going to be discipled under this world. We're going to follow and learn and pick up all of our cues from this world. That's what's going on here. That's how we need to view these lists on these higher and deeper levels. One common question I get when talking about the fruit of the Spirit is, why does Paul use the, the singular when he's talking about fruit? And then he uses the plural, the works of the flesh. That's a weird grammatical transition. The works of the flesh, plural, and then he gives that whole list. And then he says the singular fruit of the Spirit shouldn't be the fruits of the Spirit. One commentator helpfully makes this observation. This is what he says. It's because all the graces of the Spirit belong together. The fruit of the Spirit is one whole spiritual life that is rooted in the one Spirit of God. To change the image for a moment, these virtues are not nine different gems, but nine different facets of the same dazzling jewel. You see that? It's one jewel, one fruit, one work coming from one Spirit. And these are nine different beautiful facets of what it will look like, what you will experience, the kind of person you will become when the Holy Spirit is working in your life, in your heart, renewing you, when you are walking in step with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is unified. The fruit of the Spirit is also symmetric. It's holistic and it's interconnected. And this is an important observation because it helps us distinguish between spiritual fruit and natural disposition. Your natural personality. You see, there are some of you here that are just, just naturally sweet and gentle in your personality, in your disposition. I mean... Uh, I think we've got a bunch of them on our hospitality team. They don't know you, uh, but they'll say hello and greet you with a smile, even though you will ignore them, right? They'll say, please come this way and sit, and you're like, mm -hmm, right? <laughs> they will continue to be polite and kind to you, and I hope that it's because of the fruit of the Spirit, but some of it is just, they're just a nice, kind, sweet, gentle person. There's others of you here that are faithful, and you are steadfast. And you are reliable. Your yes means yes, and your no means no. But some of that is just simply because that's how you were raised. That's how you were brought up. If you think about the fruit of the Spirit, some of these categories, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? Um, we know Christians and non-Christians who have some of these traits, some of these characteristics. This is not the same as the fruit of the Spirit. Some of it is nature, some of it is nurture. Maybe you worked at Chick-fil-A, 
And you learned kindness. I mean, it was drilled into you. And now every other phrase, you're like, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, right? And it's not because you're naturally just such a kind, gentle, thoughtful person. You were trained to be that way. And if you don't pick up the training, then you can go work at Burger King, right? Right? Part of that is nurture. Part of that is through training and circumstances. But what if you're kind but also cowardly? What if you're a kind person, but you're also cowardly? What if your kindness, what if what's driving that kindness, that gentleness, that politeness, isn't the spirit of God and the grace and goodness of God? It's actually the fear of confrontation. It's you, you, you don't want people to be upset with you, so you're going to be nice to everyone. What if what's really driving your kindness is this idol of approval? You want everyone to like you. You want everyone to think well of you. And so the way to that is politeness, kindness. I'm going to smile. I'm going to be really gentle so that everyone will like me. If that is you, if that's your motivation, if that's your heart posture, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. What if you're faithful and self-controlled, really disciplined, right, really reliable, but you're also bitter and you're impatient, right? You're the kind of person you're always on time and you get so angry and frustrated with people who are late. You're like, I don't get you. What's wrong with you? And you have no grace towards them. You have no grace towards others. You see them as weak. You see them as undisciplined, unreliable. I will never hire that person. I will never rely on that person. I will never trust that person, right? And there's a spirit of just condescension and judgment, right? That too is not from the spirit. Being really faithful, really reliable, really steadfast at your job, at your disciplines, at your career, at your duties, it just means you're really good at following rules. You're really good about regiment, right? And that's just your disposition. You know the spirit of God is at work in your life when he's making you what you're not. Okay? You know the spirit of God is at work in your life when he's actually making you what you are not. What you are naturally not. Not just affirming the things that you're good at. Not just affirming the things that you like to do. But when you actually start seeing God taking an angry person and giving them joy and peace. You know, that's, that's alien righteousness. That's God doing something powerful in your life. When God takes a meek and quiet, gentle person and gives them great courage, conviction, and passion. That's God working in our lives. We know the Spirit is at work when he makes us what we are not. You see, the fruit of the Spirit, it's not a list of instructions on how to be a good Christian. It's a description of a Christian flourishing in the spirit. It's a description of what the true Christian life looks like. It's a summary of Christ-likeness. It's a picture of godliness. So don't look at the fruit of the spirit and say, I have to now do this. I have to now be kinder, be more patient, right? Be gooder, right? (laughs) If if that's, you're from the South, you say that. You gotta be gooder, right? That's not how we apply it. I've taken a lot of time to frame the fruit of the Spirit, but now I want us to kind of rest, uh, use the rest of our time to focus on the first fruit. The first fruit of the Spirit, which is love. 
Let's consider the nature of love, what it is, what it is, how we can behold it, how we can experience it. The first thing I want to say is this. Love is the summary of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? The rest of the uh, eight fruits, they're all equal. Okay? There's no ranking. He doesn't put them in order from, uh, from best to worst. Right? But love is the chief fruit. It is the summary of all of the rest of the fruit. This is why Colossians 3 says that love binds all of the other virtues together in perfect unity. If you read Colossians 3, Paul goes through another virtue list. And he talks about patience. And he talks about forgiveness and all of these other beautiful, godly virtues. And he says love is what binds them all together in unity. This is also why in 1 Corinthians 13, that beautiful passage we all know, Paul writes, love is patience. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. If you read through that passage, it almost sounds like he is listing out the fruit of the Spirit, but they're all connected to love. Love is the summary of the fruit of the Spirit. As we consider really what godly, what biblical, what agape Love is, there's this interesting, I, I want to take a quick sidebar. Um, in the Greek, there's four different categories of love. I'm not going to say the Greek words because that's, gonna, that's like me pastor flexing. Um, <laughs> but did you know that it really was the Christians, it really was Christians who kind of revolutionized, right, and in a lot of ways popularized the idea of agape love. To the Greeks, there were three dominant categories of love. Right? There was brotherly love. There was sexual love. Right? Eros, I think we all know that one. Right? And then there was family love. Like filial love. The love between a father and a, and a son. Right? Uh, children towards their parents. Filial love. Okay? Those are the three dominant categories of love. And agape was this fourth category of love that was kind of vague, kind of unused. But when Christians came to try to understand and describe and communicate the love of God and Christian love, they chose agape. They chose agape, right? And it changed the world, okay? Agape love is not unconditional love. I think we've heard that and learned that, unfortunately. Uh, that's not the best description of what agape love is. If you actually read your Bibles and look for unconditional love, you won't find it, okay? You can do a, a word search, BibleGateway.com, look up unconditional love. You won't find it there in the scriptures. What agape love actually is, is self-sacrificing love. It is sacrificial love. Okay? It's costly love. And that's why it's the best descriptor of divine love. God's love for us and the kind of love we should have for one another. More than brotherly more than sensual and erotic, more than just filial piety. It's costly, sacrificial, godly love. This is what John describes in 1 John chapter 4. This is one of the most powerful passages on love in the Bible. This is what the apostle writes. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What propitiation means is wrath-bearing substitute, costly love. Jesus bore the curse in your place. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We learn a couple of things about love in this passage, the nature of love. First, we remember its source. Where does love come from? John tells us it comes from God. Love is from God because God is love. Church, for before the creation of the universe, before God made Adam and Eve, any of the angels, anything in this world, there was love. There was perfect, overflowing, radiant love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Love is one of the eternal, essential attributes of who God is. Just as God is omnipotent, just as God is omniscient, just as God is eternal, God is love. It's not just something God does. It's who God is. God is the source of love. Second thing we must consider is, is, is its expression. How does God express love towards us? And he does it in the fullest way. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and be not just the image of the invisible God, right? Not just his son sent on a mission in this world. Jesus is love incarnate. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made what? Manifest among us. That's showing up, revealed to us. God wanted to communicate his love to us. And I know in a lot of ways we think, oh man, God loves me because he provides a job. He provides health. He provides vacations. He provides whatever it might be. We think of all of these earthly, circumstantial expressions of God's love, but friends, the greatest manifestation of God's love to you is through Jesus Christ, his son, the word becoming flesh. Jesus is love incarnate. And what did Jesus do? He didn't just feed the 5,000. He didn't just heal the leper. He didn't just teach and preach beautiful, powerful truths. Jesus Christ loved you and I to the point of death. He loved us so much with such a costly, sacrificial love. He died on the cross in your place. What kind of father would send his son on such a mission? Parents, would you do that? do that? Would you do that for a stranger? Would you allow your son, your precious child, to be nailed to the cross to save a complete stranger? 
Would you do that? Would you allow your son to be crucified to, to save not just a stranger, but an enemy, a rebel? None of us would do such a thing. And yet God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. He did that for you. That is God's expression of love for us. We see the source. We see the expression. Thirdly, we see our call. We see how we are to experience God's love, and it's in two ways. We are to be receivers of God's love, and, fi- and second, we are to be givers of that love. We are called to love God and love one another. This is how we are to experience and relate to the matchless love of God. Do you know, when you refuse to love someone, and there are all people in our lives, there are, there are always people in our lives that we struggle with loving, right? I want you to think of that right now. Who are you refusing to love right now? Right? Boom. Right? I still have people in my mind. Right? You know, when we stay in that place, you're telling God, God, I don't love you enough to love that person. I don't love you enough to love that person. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And when we start doing this, right, when we start doing this, John says, God abides in us. When you start loving your enemy, when you start loving difficult people, when we start loving one another as the body of Christ in the church, John is saying, he's making the same connection as Paul. God, we see evidence We see proof. We see the fruit of God in us. God, his Holy Spirit abiding in us, working in us, leading us, renewing us. His love is perfected in us when we start loving one another. When we refuse to do that, when we refuse to love difficult people, we're saying, God, I don't love you enough. There's a phrase that we've all heard. Unfortunately, we've even heard it in the church. I love you, but I don't have to like you. Right? I know, I, I, God, I'm called to love you, and so I will, but I don't have to like you. What does that even mean? Is anyone pulling that off successfully? Can you genuinely say, I love this person with agape, Christ-like love, but I unfriended them on Facebook. <laughs> I never talked to them. I, I mean, it's as if I have a restraining order around them. I don't, I'm, they're on this side of the room. I'm on the other side of the room, right? Maybe if they're family members, I just do the bare minimum, right? I'll see them at Christmas. Probably won't even send a birthday gift, right? But if I'm, you know, we, we just live in that space. We think, okay, I will love, but I don't have to like. Once again, that's not biblical. It's not Christian. And it's not a reflection of God's love. Here's a question. We believe God loves us, right? Do you believe God likes you? Do you believe God likes you? What if God took that posture towards you? I love you. So I sent Christ to die for you. But I want nothing else to do with you. So when you try to talk to me, I'm going to ignore you. When you need me in your life, my comfort, my presence, my peace, I'm going to keep my distance from. No, God doesn't do that. 
In fact, we see that God loves and likes. Jesus calls us his friends. Right? God, 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 God inhabits the praises of his people. He delights in us. He loves you and he likes you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to be present in your life. He wants to administer not one-time saving grace to get you out of hell. He wants to, to give you daily bread and guide you through all of your moments, all of your days, as your Lord, as your Savior, the Spirit as your comforter, and as your helper. This is the kind of love that God wants to see in his children. This is the kind of love that God wants to see in your life and in our church. Is it present? What would it look like for you to love that enemy and like that enemy? And it will cost, okay? It will cost. For you to forgive, it will cost. For you to endure dinner with that person because they're just so self-centered and terrible conversationalist, or your mother-in-law is always giving these passive-aggressive jabs on how you should be raising your kids. You're like, oh, oh, you know, every time you endure, you got to, but you have to bear that cost, right? And it's not because you're just trying to grind it out and be a good person. As you look to Jesus Christ, who has loved you with great cost, you see the source, you see the expression. You experience God's love, and that enables you to love others as Christ has loved you. Fourth, I want to say this. The opposite of love, okay? All of the fruit of the Spirit, they have opposites and they have counterfeits, okay? They have opposites and they have counterfeits, and so I want to spend some time kind of unpacking these. Uh, I got this from Tim Keller, who then got this from a guy named John Sanderson. And so basically in the church, there's just, 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 not plagiarism, because I'm giving quote, but we're all standing on everybody else's shoulders. And so I quote Keller, but Keller's quoting another guy, and so uh, we go there. But um, I kind of thought about this, and, and I want us to identify what is then the opposite, the enemy of love. And it's not hate. It's not indifference. It's pride. Okay? It's not hate. It's not indifference. It's actually pride. This is what Augustine teaches over and over again in the confessions that the opposite of love is pride and its counterfeit is flattery. A counterfeit love, a counterfeit affection, a fake love is flattery. What do I mean by these two things? You see, in the fall, our capacity to love and our understanding of love was marred. We were created to be receivers of God's love and givers of God's love. That's the great commandment, right? Love God and love one another. God wants to fill our hearts with his perfect divine love, and he wants to see his children living that out and expressing that to one another, right, for his glory. In the fall, though our hearts that were designed to receive and to give, they were marred. And we went from being people who were loving God and loving others, and we became people who just love ourselves. And that's what pride is. Okay? It's not just arrogance right, and being big-headed. It's about pride is loving yourself. Loving yourself more than God. Loving yourself more than your 
neighbors, loving yourself far more than your enemies. This is what pride is. And this is why that's the opposite of love. Because our hearts, right, our lives were created and we're purposed to, to be outward lovers, to be relational lovers. The counterfeit of love is flattery. Okay? And when you flatter somebody, you can be saying all of the right things. You can be doing things that look like love. Gifts, right? Quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation. All, you got the five love languages down and you express them and give them. But flattery is behind it all. Why? Because you're doing it because you want something back. Okay? That's why we flatter, right? You're going to flatter your boss. You're going to butter him up because you want to get that promotion. You want the raise, right? You flatter that girl. Why? Because you want her number. There's always a self-serving ambition in a prideful, sinful heart. And the counterfeit of love is flattery. You use people. Okay? You, you don't really love them. You don't really want to serve them. You don't consider them better and more important value than yourself, right? You're just using flattery, fake love as a means for your personal end. If this is true, that in the fall, our capacity to love, our experience, our understanding of love was marred and our love was disintegrated into pride and flattery and the works of the flesh, then you and I must learn how to love. We must relearn how to love. And this is the final kind of application, practical section. How do we bear the fruit of love? How do we do this? How do we learn how to love? How can we experience the fruit of love in our lives? Here's the answer. We are farmers. Okay? We are farmers. We are cultivators of the fruit. In our passage last week, I reminded us that there's only one command in this passage. Walk by the Spirit. The command is not love. Be kind. Be patient. Be peaceful. Be good. The fruit of the Spirit are not commands. There is one command for us. It's walk by the Spirit. And then the rest of the passage is a description. A description of the works of the flesh and a description of the fruit and the works of God and his Holy Spirit in our lives. So what do we do? How do we experience God's supernatural transformative work in our hearts, in our lives of becoming lovers? We have to be farmers. We are cultivators of the fruit. We don't cause the growth. We don't have the power to transform ourselves. But through the disciplines of grace, through the habits of grace, we can cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's not a passive thing, friends. Right? We are called to cultivate. We're called to farm. Paul uses this illustration for us, and it's so helpful. In the book of Corinthians, in the letter of the Corinthians, uh, there's a lot of, like, com uh, comparing. Okay? And they're saying just, who gets the credit? For the Corinthian church. Who caused us to grow and make us who we are and what we are? And people were saying, it's Paul. And others were saying, no, 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 it's this guy named Apollos. Right? I don't know if you guys have talked like that at our church. Is, is it because, you know, our worship leader David is just so good looking and so everyone's coming. Is that why we're growing and all of this stuff? No. But um, that kind of conversation is happening. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Paul's response so beautiful 
so poignant, so God-honoring. He says this, I planted, I literally planted the church. Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Man, that's a, that's a, that's the, the same is true, not only in the church, the same is true in your growth and relationship to Jesus Christ. How do you become this kind of Christ-like, godly, loving, joyful, patient person? Not by your power, okay? But by the power of God and his Holy Spirit. But what we must do, we must cultivate, cultivate the fruit through prayer, through reading the scriptures, through confession, through worship, through fellowship, through service, through all of these beautiful disciplines of grace. We plant, we water, we till the soil, and it's only God who gives the growth. That's our command. Walk by the Spirit. Keep in step by the Spirit. And as you do, the Spirit will bear His fruit in your life by His power and in his time. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, he wrote a book called Charity and Its Fruits. Charity and Its Fruits. And what that actually means is love and its fruits. Charity was a, an ancient old English word for love. And at the end of his book, he has this chapter. And the chapter is titled, Heaven is a Place of Love. Heaven is a Place of Love. And his point is, that when we get to heaven, we are going to experience the love of God completely unfiltered, completely radiant, unmarred. We're going to behold, we're going to receive, we're going to enjoy the perfect, holy, beautiful, matchless love of God in full. Heaven is going to be a place of love. We're going to see the Father loving the Son. We're going to see the Son loving the Spirit and the Spirit loving the Father in perfect Trinitarian beauty. And that is going to just delight us. That's going to be exhilarating. That's going to be beautiful. Heaven is a place of love. Friends, the church, you know what we will need to be, what we're called to be? We're called to reflect heaven on earth. We're called to show the world what heaven might look like. That they, would, that they would come into this family, come into the church, and get a taste of heaven. Sinners saved by the grace of God. Rebels, enemies who have now become sons and daughters of God, adopted into his family. That the world would come into a house and realize there is room for you. In our Father's house, there are many rooms. There is room for you here at all nations, as broken, as hurt, as wounded, as dysfunctional, as prideful, as selfish, as perverted as you are. There is room for you in this house. There is room for you in this family. Because we're called to reflect heaven. More than anything else. 
I want us to be a loving church. More than a radical church, that'd be cool. More than a generous church, it'd be awesome if everyone doesn't just tithe, but double, triple tithes, that'd be cool. Right? Each building in two years. Right? Over theological, it'd be cool if I'm like quoting Jonathan Edwards and all, we're like, yeah, I read that. You guys would never read it. cool to have a church that just is super passionate just prayer wars or pray all day those are those are beautiful good things but more than anything god wants us and he's calling calling us to be a loving church to love one another as christ has loved us to love one another to love our neighbors as a reflection and an invitation to heaven which will be a place of love. Right now, our church has gone through a lot of growth. There isn't a person in this room that can name everybody else's name. Definitely not me. I'm terrible with names. Right? And so there's this anxiety. There's this sh- social kind of stranger danger. And it's just so easy after service to take refuge into the few people that you are comfortable with, people that you like to talk to, people that you want to connect with. And I encourage you, even two minutes, five minutes after service, would you love somebody for the first time? Would you welcome someone that you don't know? And you'll both be embarrassed, like, oh, I've been coming here for like six months. Oh, me too. I've been here for like eight months. Sorry, I never said hello. Right? Would you consider what it might look like to genuinely in a Christ-reflecting way, love the people in this realm for God's glory, right? for our joy. Let's see. Let's experience the love of God abiding in us. Let's experience the love of God perfected in us here at All Nations as we love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love that you saw us in our sin and you sent your only son we thank you that your love is an initiating love that you didn't wait for us to make the first move that you didn't wait for us to go through the right motions, to say the right things, to give the right offerings and sacrifices. God, no, you loved first. You sacrificed first. We thank you. I pray that right now we would both experience your love and we would demonstrate God, there are people here right now who haven't known what it means for you to love them, for you to accept them, for you to embrace them and call them your own because they are are so weighed down by their sin and failure. They feel so guilty and torn up by all the things that they are lacking. I pray that right now you would show them Jesus paid it all. That Jesus 
as their substitute. That Jesus died that they might be forgiven. That Jesus was forsaken that they might be accepted. God, would you fill our hearts with your love? And Lord, would you compel us? Would you lead us by your love towards you in worship and devotion? and affection. God, we confess there are people we don't really like in this room. People who have hurt us. People who have disappointed us. Lord, reconcile us. Help us to forgive.